This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Morning, everybody. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today. And let's turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're introducing a new series today. Very excited about this Gospel. The Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you're here today, we want you to be able to follow along. We have copies of the Scriptures for you. If you'll raise your hand, our ushers will bring one to you. We also have Spanish translations, so you can, you can tell them if you need one of those. Just raise your hand, leave them up, and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at the first three verses and introduce this gospel. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant Word. And it's a gift for us this morning as we seek to search for the glory of Christ in the Gospel. Again, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can, we can think of that verse as kind of the title for this Gospel. It, it summarizes the content the first word of the Gospel of Mark is actually beginning. Like Genesis 1-1, if you're familiar, the first verse of the entire Bible in the beginning. Mark clearly is choosing the word beginning to remind us of God's activity throughout all of human history. In the beginning, God created the world, and so too, the age of the Gospel is manifest when the Son of God becomes a human being in Jesus Christ. One commentator said, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. In the very first verse, Mark skillfully prepares the stage for his picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ, this unique servant of the Lord, the Son of God. What does he mean by the word gospel in verse 1? The beginning of the gospel. It, it came to be a word used to describe a type of literature, a gospel. We might say that man wrote a gospel, the gospel of Mark. 
But that isn't the meaning in Mark 1.1. It's never used that way in the New Testament. What Mark means by the word gospel is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. What is then the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, Mark is just the book for us to answer this question. And today we're going to look at these opening verses and consider some of the reasons we had for choosing to study this gospel for our next series as a congregation. What, what was it that made us want to do this? Want to do this series? What were the points, the themes that, that we thought would be helpful? What can we anticipate? How can we benefit from this series in 2019? So here are, here are some benefits from a study of this gospel. We'll just look at several of them today, as many as we can. I have way too many, so we won't get to all of them. But number one, a series on Mark allows us to review the gospel. A series on Mark allows us to review the gospel, which is something we want to do each and every week, if not every day. We want to take possession of the grace of God that comes to us in the gospel. We want to review the gospel. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves. And so a series on the gospel of Mark is going to help us do that. We haven't gone through a gospel as a church for over five years, so we thought it would just be wise to devote ourselves now, this year, to reviewing a gospel and preaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. We want to review what God has done for us in Christ. We want to honor Christ, we want to obey Christ, we want to worship Him. But it's essential to remember that if we're going to do those things, it begins with what God has done for us. Before it's what we do for Him, it always begins with what He's done for us. And we want to review that. For Mark, the Gospel is the story of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's, it's good news. Christ has come to redeem a people from their bondage to sin. It is the good news. There is no other. It is the good news. So what is it? You may remember evangelism explosion if you're 100 years or older. There was an illustration in that program. It was a great program. And... There's an illustration of the Gospel. You're handed two books, and one is for your right hand, and one is for your left hand. Both have a thousand blank pages in them. The book on your right hand is your life. Every time you sin, a mark is put in that book. And so then the question is, as you're trying to share the Gospel, how many marks are there in that book? This is your book. Blank pages, every time you send a mark, how many marks are there? How many pages would be filled up? 
And if you're at all humble, you, you would say, and we'd all say, is there any part of the book that isn't marked? And I think I'd be saying, I'm going to need another book. On the other hand, in your left hand is a book of the life of Jesus. Every time he sinned, a mark was put in that book. How many marks are in his book? How many times did he sin? Not one time. It's completely blank. Every page in the book is blank. Here's how salvation happens. On the cross, God takes the book in your right hand, your life, your sins, your marks, puts it on Christ. And when we put our trust in Christ, God takes His book that's in our left hand and He puts it on me. My sin to Christ, His righteousness to me. That's the Gospel. It's the good news for those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation that places your book on Christ when He died on the cross and God places His book on you. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, four inspired histories of our Lord's earthly ministry in the New Testament. Of those four, Mark is the shortest. He tells us nothing about the birth of Jesus Christ. He tells us nothing about His early life. He has few prolonged sections of Jesus' sermons. It's condensed. It's a very condensed Gospel but it's powerful. It's full of precious historical facts about the Lord that are communicated in a very simple style. Very condensed, very simple. It doesn't have a lot of His sayings, but it's full of what He did. Fascinating details are found in this Gospel that are found in none of the other three. Mark was included in the New Testament because he was thought to be communicating for one of Jesus' disciples that you'll know, Peter. He was Peter's assistant, the early church determined, and the writer of this Gospel. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but Peter was. And as you work through this Gospel, you'll notice that it's very vivid when Peter's involved. And you'll notice at times that his weaknesses are made much of. The weaknesses of the disciples are made much of. His especially. And, and you'll notice, if you study the other Gospels, that in the other Gospels, they'll, they'll talk about some special things, some good things that he did, and they won't be included in the Gospel of Mark. It's the story from an eyewitness, a disciple of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. According to Mark, the message of the Gospel centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Note, first of all, Jesus. It's the Greek form of Joshua, which, mean, which means the Lord is salvation, or Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is the one through whom the Lord will save His people now. It's the name His parents 
gave him when he was born that the angel of the Lord gave him before he was born, gave his parents. Jesus, the night I was converted, it's all I said. All I said was that name, Jesus. I've never been the same since. I said it with faith and trust. It's all I said. It was my confession of faith, Jesus. I think I said it twice. Today, every person in here who calls on the name of Jesus with faith and trust will be saved. So it's our joy as a congregation to offer you this good news. You can be saved from your sins by calling on that name. The second, Mark mentions in verse 1, Christ. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. And it means anointed. He's the anointed one for this office of Messiah, of Savior. He's anointed with the Spirit of God. He's anointed with the Spirit for a mission. It's, it's like we inaugurate a president, but this is an anointing that gives spiritual power and ability. He is God's man on earth. He came with a purpose to establish God's kingdom. And with this divine, with God's anointing, He's qualified. He's equipped. He's God's man for this office. And He came to change the world. He did change the world. He does change the world. He will change the world. And He can change your life. Finally, Mark says He's the Son of God. He begins his gospel with these words that assert he, he's fully God. He closes his gospel with a declaration, a confession from a Gentile, a Roman soldier who's standing watching Jesus die on the cross. Mark 15, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he says, truly this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the message of Mark. And it's central to the Gospel. The man who died on the cross was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it explains why His death on the cross as our substitute is of infinite value. This is why His atoning death is effective. It saves us. And two times in this Gospel, God the Father speaks audibly so everybody can hear. And both times, He's affirming His relationship with this man. One is right here in this chapter, down in verse 11. A voice came from heaven when Jesus is baptized by John. We'll look at it. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Everybody heard it. And then another time in the Gospel, he goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they are amazed to see him transfigured. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a, a voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And you can just hear God the Father God the Spirit this morning 
saying to us, listen to Him. And that's why we're studying this Gospel. Number two, a series on Mark allows us to grow in our understanding of the cross. It allows us to grow in our our understanding and our passion for the message of the cross. It's what we're all about. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross, Paul says, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, the message of the cross. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. That's the message of the cross. That's what we see on the cross. It's central to our purpose as a church. The message of Christ crucified. Foolishness to so many, but to us, it's the power of God. Do you ever get tired of hearing it? I'll tell you a story about a dog. It's about all I've got. I'm a storyteller, so tell stories. I have a big lab, and I try to walk him every day so he won't destroy my house. We take the same walk in the neighborhood, and we go. You know, I kind of get tired of the same route. I mean exactly the same route. He never gets tired. Every walk, it's as if he's never been on this walk before. He's so excited. He, he definitely knows the route. He leads. I follow him. But he is eager. He's excited because there's always a new piece of trash to eat. There's always something new that's smelly that he can dive in. There's a new dog smell to discover. Now, I miss all this, see? I miss all the action. Whatever it is that keeps him excited on this walk, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm not as discerning as he is. Because there are exciting things to discover on this walk. You know my point. We never exhaust the mystery of the cross, and we never will for all eternity. If you're eager... If you're excited, if you're a tail wagon lab, you're going to discover new things. We're going to discover new things in this gospel. God's going to reveal himself to us afresh. His death, Jesus' death, was not the death of a mere man. He was fully man, but he's the eternally blessed God forever. His sufferings were sufficient because He's the Son of God. And we, we want to review the truth that though our sins are many, our Redeemer is able to save us and deliver us from the wrath of God we deserve because our Redeemer is Jesus Christ, the mighty God. He loved us and He gave Himself for us on the cross. It's what this book is all about. It's what Mark is all about. This is the message of the cross. And you're going to notice when we go through Mark, when he gets to the events of Passion Week, the week of Jesus' sufferings, 
Good Friday and Easter, the resurrection, He is going to slow down. And we're going to talk a lot about the cross. And we're going to enjoy some unhurried time to think about our message. You know, one of the biggest challenges, here's a point of application, one of the biggest challenges pastors face is, is convincing people that aren't Christians that they're under the dominion of sin. And it's also trying to convince believers that they're not under the dominion of sin. They've been set free. It's the fruit of the cross. United to Christ by faith, when He died on the cross, we died to sin. We've been set free. We no longer have to serve sin anymore. We don't have to be mastered by sin. We'll never be perfect in this life, but we can grow. We can experience progress. We can live a successful Christian life, which just means we can become more like Christ throughout our lives. Never perfect, but we can grow. Why? Because of the message of the cross, the power of sin is broken. So today, is anything mastering you? Are you in bondage to sin and you're a believer? Listen, there's, there's a word here for you. Christ sets sinners free from the dominion of sin. You no longer have to serve sin. A third reason a series on Mark will benefit us is to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the coming of Christ. So he says here in verse 2, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written, as it is written, you're going to see that in the Gospels, as it is written, he's referring to our Old Testament in Isaiah the prophet. So he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he's going to identify John the Baptist, which we'll, we'll look at him next week, going to identify John the Baptist as the man that's the voice. We studied First and Second Samuel last fall. This is all by design. We wanted to look at the Old Testament and jump into a gospel and then consider these two together. The Old Testament is given to us for our instruction. We can benefit from the Spirit-inspired Word of God in the Old Testament. It's unique. It's for our encouragement. But now turning to the New Testament, we can review the coming of Christ, think about those Old Testament promises we looked at, and then the Old Testament is just lit up. They go together well. They work together well. If, if we don't connect them, we're making a mistake. I was at my favorite donut shop the other day, and a man came into the donut shop. It was kind of odd. He was kind of There was a line forming for donuts, but he wasn't in the line. He was just standing there, and it was awkward. But then the lady behind the counter said, Are you the Uber guy? And he said, yes. And she said, oh, let me get your order. So I figured this out. 
someone hired an Uber guy to drive to my favorite donut shop and get an order of donuts to bring to their house. Some, some of you folks are going to be putting on some weight this year. Now that you've, you mean I don't even have to go out of the house? I just call Uber, it's five bucks. I get my favorite donuts. That's next level. You know, I, I was like had a light bulb over my head. Boom. Uber, that's good. My favorite donut shop, Status Dough. That's really good. But delivering status dough, <laughs> it just doesn't get any better than that. The Old Testament is good. The New Testament, good. Better. Together, it doesn't get any better. You see how God's been at work. Throughout history. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is quoted in all four Gospels. Referring to John the Baptist. Here's, here's the whole text in context. Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken in the Old Testament. Every gospel quotes these verses. And it's in transition. This, if, you, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 39 says to the people in the 8th century B.C., it says to the people of Israel who have God's people hardened their heart, I'm going to discipline you. You're going into exile. Chapter 40 shifts and Isaiah now is prophesying to people a couple hundred years later and saying to them, comfort. The discipline is over. His perspective changes. Comfort, comfort, my people. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's John the Baptist. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Christ is coming to comfort His people. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. There was nothing unforeseen and suddenly contrived in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. In the very beginning of Genesis, we find it predicted that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. All through the Old Testament, we find the same event foretold with constantly increasing clearness. It was a promise often renewed and repeated that a Deliverer and Redeemer should one day come. His birth, His character, His life, His death, His resurrection, His forerunner 
were all prophesied of long before He came. Redemption was worked out and accomplished in every step just as it was written. Oh, that should encourage you. Oh, please leave today and dive into the Bible. It is an amazing book. We studied First and Second Samuel so we could appreciate that. And now the life and ministry of Jesus is linked to this Old Testament in no uncertain terms. It's, it's not that, you know, God had a plan in the Old Testament, it just didn't work out. So he kind of scratched his head and thought, now what? The Old Testament's important because it gives us a fuller understanding of who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. That's why we're studying this book. Number four, the series on Mark allows us to meditate on the glory of Christ. Here's the payoff. Meditate on the glory of Christ. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh is going to see it together. In the Old Testament, the glory of God would be seen. You know, the cloud in the wilderness that the Israelites followed in the temple, the glory would be seen. The heavens were said to declare the glory of God. But there's several of these Old Testament passages that look forward when a day when the, the glory of God is going to fill the earth. Everybody's going to see it. This is the glory that was present in Jesus Christ. John 1, another gospel. And the word of God, the word became flesh, reference to Jesus, became flesh and, and dwelt among us, and, and we have seen his glory. That's what John's trying to tell you. We have seen his glory. We're eyewitnesses. Peter's trying to tell you. I've seen His glory. You're going to see it again and again in this Gospel. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. In the last days of his life, John Owen the greatest theologian England ever produced, turned his attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. And I have been the beneficiary for a few weeks. Meditations on the glory of Christ. It's available in the bookstore. Curtis will be there begging you to buy it. It's material from that he preached to his congregation in London as he was dying. It's his last book. In his intro, preface to the reader, his introduction to the book, it would be a small book today. Typical Puritan. He says, I could go on and on introducing the book, other great and glorious advantages which may be obtained in the diligent discharge of this duty, this meditating on the glory of Christ, but the book itself will direct us to these benefits. 
Besides, weakness, weariness, and the near approaches of death do call me off from any further labor of this kind. I, I, I'm dying, so I'm going to have to quit. I could go on. I'd like to go on. Trust me, he could have gone on. But I'm dying, so I have to stop. Here are some of the benefits of meditating on Christ's glory. According to John Owen, we find rest for our souls. It becomes clear how the, the things that distress us are so small and unimportant. They, they all come, according to Owen, from this root of overvaluing temporal things, things in this life that aren't eternal. That's why we're so upset. The best things in this world don't last. The best things. And when we meditate on the glory of Christ, we realize we have something that is better by far. We have something that is eternal. And so Owen says, one real view of the glory of Christ will give you full relief. One. Full relief. So that's one benefit, if you're interested. Another one, we're relieved of the things that trouble our minds. That lead us to discouragement and depression. When we meditate on the glory of Christ. Again, Owen, a due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. We'll bring it into a quiet frame. Wherein faith will be able to say to the winds and waves of distempered passions, troubling emotions. Faith will be able to say to these troubling emotions, depression, peace, be still, and they shall obey it. Another one, meditating on the glory of Christ is a way to experience a sense of God's love to our soul. The Spirit uses, when we deeply think about the glory of Christ, the Spirit uses that as the means to pour the love of God into our hearts. Says Owen. So we meditate on the glory of Christ and then this love for Christ grows. And finally, meditating on the glory of Christ will carry us, Owen says, cheerfully into death. <laughs> Comfortably through death itself. He, he said in his book that he was living daily with a continual expectation of my dissolution. I'm dying. And then he goes on in that book to tell readers how meditating on the glory of Christ has just been such a wonderful relief to him and encouraged him and made him cheerful as he faces death. So there are some of the benefits. It'll carry us cheerfully, comfortably, and victoriously through death when we meditate on the glory of Christ. God acts in special wisdom to us during those times. And this, that's a spiritual... Discipline. During his last days, this great work, this book, was being prepared for the press, and the man, a Puritan minister that was overseeing getting it published, and came to Owen as he was dying, late 17th century, came to see him, and 
came to tell him that the book was being printed. And Owen had poured out his finest thinking in this book. And so he was glad to hear that it was being published. He said, I'm glad to hear it, but oh, Brother Payne. <laughs> this is classic. The long wished for day has come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. I don't care about the stupid book. I'm about to see it. I've been meditating on this. If you read the book, I mean, it's page after page after page of the glory of Christ. And I am about to see it in a way you can't see it in this world. This, this series is an opportunity for us to just spend unhurried time thinking about. Meditating on the glory of Christ. That's what we're in search of. And may the Spirit of God cause it to have the kind of profound effect it had on John Owen on our lives. Colossians 1, Paul says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. This is who Mark is introducing us to. And now Paul saying, by Him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and all things were created for Him. God governs everything. And does all things for a reason. He has a purpose. What is that purpose? I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what we're doing. But I know what God is doing. He is magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what He is doing. Got to hear from Dr. Piper right now, don't we? Galaxies and grandsons are not gratuitous or superfluous. They are created for the glory of Jesus Christ. They serve to magnify the greatness of Christ. From God's standpoint, nothing is superfluous. They were created to magnify the greatness of Christ. I have four grandsons. This caught my attention. I'm getting a fifth one this Thursday. According to Scripture, from God's standpoint, they aren't unnecessary. They have a divine purpose. They serve to magnify greatness of Christ. Have you ever wondered about why there's so many galaxies? Why there's so many stars? They're not superfluous. They were there so God could use them to illustrate His covenant promises to Abram. So in Genesis 15, Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. The Lord is saying, you're going to be a father of a multitude. I don't even have a kid. A member of my household will be my heir. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. 
Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. All those stars are there because the Lord wanted to show Abram what was going to happen when the glory of God filled the earth through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's been fulfilled. Another reason a series on Mark will benefit us, it'll allow us and encourage our love for Christ. John Owen was probably the greatest theologian, again, that England ever produced. He, he was British. He was a Puritan. Theologian. British. Puritan. Not exactly over-emotional. They aren't known for expressing emotions, but John Owen emphasizes repeatedly the importance of our affections. He places an emphasis on how we feel about Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says this man, given his massive intellectual equipment, combined with his profound grasp of theology, to what does he aspire most of all? It's the sense of the love of Christ for him. It's what he wanted. I want to know it. I want to sense it. It's possible to search the Scriptures which testify of Christ, never actually to discover the power. The power. We have this Gospel because of the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit still works through this Gospel. And the Spirit will show us the glory of Christ. And we will feel it. We're praying we feel it. It's what we aspire to. We don't want to just study the Scriptures. Because it's possible to search the Scriptures which testify of Christ and never actually to discover the power of their truth in coming to Christ and drinking in His love for us. It's what I want to do. I want to drink in His love for us. God didn't send a theological axiom, a truth, a theological truth to die for us. He sent His beloved Son. It's communion with Him which we aspire to. Search for the glory of Christ in this Gospel. That's what we want to do. Father, I pray this morning that You would show us Your glory. Lord, have mercy. We need Your mercy, Lord. There are limitations in this world. We have opponents and we have to fight to see this glory. Lord, we need Your mercy. We need Your grace, Lord. We need the fullness of the Spirit. Lord, pour out Your Spirit on every individual. I pray for those who have never said the name of Jesus with faith and trust. I pray that they would be saved, Lord, today. 
I pray you'd convert them and give them the gift of faith. And for every believer, Lord, I pray that as we search for the glory of Christ, we would find it in these pages in a fresh way. We would discover once again the glory of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be transformed. It's for His sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.